Hi, and welcome to the Willowridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Glad that you guys are here. If you're, if you would like to, if you got your Bibles with you this morning, go and open them up to First Corinthians chapter two. That's uh, where we're going to be as we continue on. Well, I don't know about y'all. I've lived in South Carolina since I was five years old, six years old, uh, and I've never experienced a stretch of cold like we're going through right now, right? Uh, got up this morning and uh, went out to crank up my truck to, to get it warmed up, and it we had a nice toasty 16 degrees. Um, so I'm grateful uh, that the heat is working when we walked in here this morning. And normally, uh, I don't know that, that you know this, but if you're in the band like, like you know this, it's, it's hotter up here than it is down there. And normally that's a problem, but right now it's nice, all right? Uh, So uh, glad that you're here with us, glad that it's warm inside, that we can open up God's Word and study together. Uh, Last week we began our studies, actually two weeks ago, that's right, when we were at home, we started our study in 1 Corinthians. Now, if you you see this card that's around you, uh, you'll see our little reading plan. This will kind of help you track through where I'm going to be at on Sunday mornings, but also where our small groups are going to be. And so what we would love for every single one of us to do as a church is go through through this book of the Bible together, to do it individually in our quiet time and in our study, to do it corporately together in worship. Now, in worship, we won't be able to go through every verse like you will be at your, at your home, but this can give us an opportunity to kind of dive in, go a little bit deeper into some areas in those passages that God lays on our hearts as we study. But then also, all of our small groups are, are working through this. So just a reminder, most of our small groups got started back for uh, this winter slash spring semester last week. And if you aren't a part of one, we would love for you to be a part of one. And so please get connected with that. And we've got information about that as well. But we, we started last week in, in our study with looking at that. And, and, and Paul, what we dealt with a lot last week was, was the challenge to the church at Corinth to be unified. That, that within the context of that church, of that local body that, that Paul had, had planted and had released to, to different leadership, right? Paul addresses some things that are, that are coming to him. He says that he was notified uh, of these issues uh, for, from those that were sent from the house of, of Chloe. And what we find that there are four factions that we talked about, four divisions within the church. And it's, it's rooted in who each of these individuals decides to follow. That there's a group there who's like, we follow Paul. Paul is the one that, that hears from the Lord and then communicates this to us. And that was probably the Gentile converts as, as Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. There, there's a group, though, of, of Jewish converts who were, who were there, and they said, no, we, we follow Cephas, who we believe and understand to be the, the apostle Peter, because Peter would largely connect with and was a missionary in a Jewish context. There was another group that, that was there that would say, no, we are followers of Apollos, and, and Apollos was this Greek Christian orator who, who was just really good with his words, told a really good story, was, was really wise, and, and people could just 
just hang on every word that he, that he shares. And then there was another group there, and we had to explain this in a little bit more depth last week, who says, no, well, we follow Christ. And when we hear that, we think, well, maybe they, they got it right. They're the group that's getting it, but they're not. And, and, and the reason why I say they're not, even though they say they're following Christ, is they feel like they had risen above uh, everyone else in the church in areas uh, concerning spiritual matters. And so, uh, you know, spiritual arrogance, we're better than you is where they were. And so Paul comes in this church where he's gonna address a lot of things throughout 1 Corinthians that fall into some theology and practical applications. And he's like, no, 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 the church can't be divided. The church needs to unify. And so he moves them away from agendas, away from, from egos to, to remind them of some things that are going to be very important for, for what we're going to look at this morning. He, he reminds them all that they are the body of Christ and that they've been uniquely equipped with, with who they are to, to celebrate and to worship Christ in their context and to reach their community. Paul says that you've been fully equipped with every spiritual gift needed. You don't need Paul. You don't need Apollos. You don't need Peter. You've got you. And what God is going to do in you through the power of the Holy Spirit resting in you, you've been fully equipped. He, he tells them that he wants them to, to focus in on, on Jesus. And, and, and Paul kind of drawing himself as the example, he, he says, was it Paul's name that you were baptized in? Was, was Paul the one who was crucified for you? No, no, no. It's in the name of Jesus that we're baptized. It's Jesus who was crucified for us. That's who we're here for. That's who we follow. And if the leader's not pointing you to him, then he's not a leader worth, worth following. And, and then he says, well, we're going to focus in on the gospel. Focus in on what the gospel demands of you. And that's why Paul says that, that when he came to them. Now, now Paul, like in, in Paul's day, let's understand that, that Paul, like Ivy League education, trained under the best of the best. Like when you read Paul's letters, you understand that this guy has, has a gift and has a mastery of language and, and, and of writing and communicating. But Paul comes to them and says, but it's a focus on the gospel. He says, when I came to you and shared, I did not come with eloquent, or, or eloquent words or, or word, worldly wisdom, but instead I came to you with the simplicity of the power of the gospel. And that's what you need to focus in on. And this is where we're going to pick back up. And so let's, let's start reading uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse, verse 1. And he says, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So, so Paul's kind of repeating himself here. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so let's, let's kind of pause for here for just a second. So, so Paul, again, reinforces, I didn't try to use worldly logic, worldly wisdom to persuade you in the gospel. But here's what Paul says, and, and, and verse two is, is worded kind of funny. It, it's one of those where what Paul's saying doesn't communicate very well as it's translated over into English. But, but what Paul is, is saying is, is, in all that I did, in all that I said, I wanted to point you toward and display for you the gospel. 
So that's, that, that's my life. That's my purpose. That's my hope. That, that, that's what I was there doing. And, and so he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So it's not by the power of Paul, by the words of Paul, by the intellect of Paul, by the reasoning of Paul, but it's in everything that you saw, everything displayed, everything that taught was the power of the gospel. Now, verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul came to them. He came to them in humility. Look at his words. Paul says, through weakness fear and trembling, right? This is not a man who's trying to wow them by his presence. This is not a man who, who says through, through my personality and, and who I am, but Paul says in humility, in weakness and in fear and much trembling, I came to you and that I delivered to you the message that God calls me to. And this is what's important, and it's, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So what Paul's pointing to is his message was not powered by man. It's not Paul sitting back in the back and saying, how can I talk them into this? How can I convince them of this? How can I persuade them to this? Paul's not sitting back like a, like a politician trying to think of all of the points to get him on board. Paul's not sitting back like a salesman saying, how can I get them to, to, to take a hold of this and do this? He says, no, no, I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling. And so as you responded, it was not me who you're responding to, but you're responding by the power of, their, of the Spirit of God. And so now... What Paul wants them to understand, what Paul wants them to get is now their faith does not rest in the wisdom of the world, but instead their faith is found, their faith is powered, their, their faith is given to them through the power of God. And so who's their faith attached to? Paul? An event? A meeting? A day? No, their, their faith is attached to God. And who saved them? Who was their means of salvation? Whose power did salvation come to it? Was, it? was it Paul? Was it the environment? Was it the church? No, who saved them? God saved them. Christ. And this is what Paul wants them to understand, where their faith comes from, who their faith is found in. Because Paul's left Paul's sending letters. Paul knows his days are numbered. Why? Because he's human, and they're going to end. But Paul wants it all to rest in who God is, because the salvation that comes from Paul isn't salvation to begin with, right? And he wants them to understand, for, for them and for us today, that their faith, it's a spiritual work. It's not a work that Paul did. It's not a work that they did. But it's a work of God of what he's doing. And so this is what we begin to see as it spills over from, from chapter 1 and chapter 2. But now Paul's going to begin to talk about a little bit different wisdom. Look at, look at verse 6. He says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. All right? And so Paul's going to make a move and now talk about we didn't have the wisdom of the world 
But the believers here do have a wisdom. Continue on verse, verse six. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear, ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So Paul says there's this hidden wisdom. There's this hidden wisdom that's given. There's this hidden wisdom that's imparted, and it's given to believers through the power of the Spirit that as men and women, as their hearts are awakened, they're able to respond to this. And it's the, the power of the gospel. It's what Paul was talking about, the fact that the Spirit of the Lord working and moving in a life of a man and woman as they respond to God as their Savior, Christ is their Savior in repentance and surrender. And he says, this is not the wisdom of the world. This is not the conning of man. This is not through the eloquent words of man that this happens but this is through the working of the Spirit of God that this is imparted to us, all right? But then Paul says this. He says there are those who do not have this wisdom, and that's what I want to focus on today. He said there are those who do not have this wisdom, and, and he defines them. He doesn't just say they're saved and there's lost, Paul defines those who, who are unable to understand this, who God does not impart this to. And look back at verse 6. He said, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. So this is who Paul says who doesn't have it, and they are doomed to pass away, these rulers of the age. Well, what does that mean? Sometimes when we look at Scripture, we can look and see things like principalities of, of, of this world, and, and there's this dynamic of, of spiritual warfare that is existing uh, of what's there and, and the earthly people who, who are there. We, we don't know what's talking about. And so when we see rulers of this age, are we talking in a physical manifestation of that, of different individuals that we see? Or are we talking more in a spiritual world, a spiritual realm of spiritual warfare? So Paul clarifies this in verse 8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul says, here's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Pharisees and the religious rulers of this day. I'm talking about the political rulers of this day who, because of what they did, they led Christ to his crucifixion in a physical sense. Now, we know you and I, man, we're responsible for his death. He died for our sin. Our sin nailed him to the cross. But Paul's saying that in this crucifixion that happened, there were those whose hearts had become hardened to the truth of God, even though it was there. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't understand who he was. 
because they had so dove into the wisdom of this world that they could not receive the wisdom of God in the gospel. And that's the sin that we want to talk about this morning. The sin of the Pharisees, the sin of self-righteousness. The sin of self-righteousness. I think sometimes we look at sin and we don't understand the condemnation that comes with it and, and the careful warning that Scripture gives us about sin. And so within this passage of Scripture, as we read through it, um, so, so that you know too, our staff, on um, every Tuesday we have staff Bible study together and we study the passage of Scripture that we're going to be talking about this morning. And I believe we were in there for like two hours together this Tuesday morning, just knocking through this, not getting beyond, talking about how dangerous the sin of self-righteousness is. The danger that, that, that comes with this. The self-righteousness of what Paul gives us here that prevents someone from hearing and responding to the gospel. And, and Jesus talks about this in, in Luke 18. If you want to flip there, we're going we're to be here for a little bit as, as well. In, in Luke 18, in, in verse 9, Jesus uh, tells a, a parable. And we learn some lessons about self-righteousness. It says in Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men walk up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, all right? So if I've been using that word and you're unclear, the Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day of, of Christ and, and in a lot of ways in the day of Paul who, who were viewed, who saw themselves as both religiously and socially good. They saw themselves this way. This is how other people would, would see them as well. They sought to follow the law down to the nth degree to continue to obey every aspect in that. And in there, their danger was, and this is what, they're gonna, what we're going to see, their obedience to what God called them to created within themselves a sense of self-righteousness. So that's one of the men of Pharisee. But the other was a tax collector. And so let's talk about tax collectors. They were religiously and socially bad, right? That's how they were viewed. Tax collectors were not the people you wanted your kids to grow up and be, right? They were the people who had betrayed their faith. They had betrayed their people. They were thieves, and they were just considered evil. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Now let's look at what he does. The Pharisee comes in, stands there before God and says, I have righteousness that's found in myself. God, look at what I do. Look at who I am. It's not that the power of God that I do these, but it's out of the power of me that I do these. And self-righteousness, right? But verse 13, but the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Both of these men approach the Lord. One approaches in his own righteousness, but then the other approaches through the grace and mercy of God and knows that his only standing that is found in life is found in the grace and the mercy poured out toward him from God and God alone. And look at Jesus' words. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Right? And this is the warning of what Paul's given the church. Don't be the Pharisee who comes in and stands in the power of their own righteousness. Because the people who are this way over time, what begins to happening is the hardening of the heart, and they can't even hear the power of the gospel and respond to it. They're lost because of what has taken place and taken root and taken hold in their heart of self-righteousness. But, but self-righteousness also, it, it, it's got an ugly cousin that I want us to talk about this morning. And while we see the self-righteousness as those within the loss that prevent them from being able to hear the gospel, I believe that this ugly cousin that many believers struggle with this. We can have faith and put our faith in Christ, but yet exude some of these same behaviors in our life. And so we don't suffer from self-righteousness because we understand and we know that our righteousness is found in God, but yet there's these characteristics and behaviors that, that exude from us in the same way, and it prevents us from living the life that God has called us to, and it's the sin of self-glorification. Look at, flip over a couple chapters in, in Luke chapter 22. We'll start reading here in just a second in, in, in verse 24. But kind of give some of the context of, of what's going on here. Um, this is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed and led off to be crucified. And Jesus, who's told the disciples repeatedly that their journey to Jerusalem is the journey to his death. And he's reminding them. He tells them that he'll be betrayed he tells them that they'll die. They partake in the Passover meal together. They have the Lord's Supper. And then this is what happens. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I was just going to pause for a second. Can you kind of miss it right here, you know? Like, you've got these guys, and Jesus is like, I'm going to die. And they're like, but which one of us is the best? You know what I mean? Verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves, for it is the greater for one who reclines at the table or the one who serves. It is not the ones who recline at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus, like, you're going to miss it. And you're going to struggle with self-glorification in your life if you live at this point of how do I rise above the rest? How do I take on the recognition? These are, these are men who have given up much to follow Jesus. But yet when it comes down to it, where their hearts begin to struggle, where their hearts show their spiritual immaturity, where their hearts show their weakness is in self-glorification. Hey, Jesus, go ahead and just get it established to everybody that's right here who's the best among us. Right? An elevation, a glorification of self. And so in this context, when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think there's some, some warnings that we can take. The first warning is, are we people that struggle with self-righteousness? Do you feel that in you there is a righteousness that's manifested from you because of who you are? And if that's who you are, regardless of what you say, you've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also, among us here, is there a sense in some of the hearts of the men and women who fill this space every single week, who love the Lord and worship him, but sometimes in their heart, there's the wandering both in this place and out of here to just kind of want to be the best and the greatest and be recognized and be praised for it, right? What do we see? What do you examination in my life I, uh, this week in, in, in reading, I, I came up with a handful of warning signs that I want us to, to wrap up and, and we'll talk about and look at here. To ask yourself the question, do I struggle with these things? And if you do, then maybe your struggle is in self-righteousness. Maybe you struggle in self-glorification, all right? So just a handful of warning signs that we're going to talk about. And, and by the way, you can see them in spiritual context, but you can also see them in everyday context, right? So apply these to who you are here, but apply these also to who you are there, wherever there is, all right? Number one, do you struggle with a sense of entitlement? Do you struggle with a sense of entitlement? What do I mean by that? Are you constantly a person who feels like you deserve more than you have? Are you a person who feels like you deserve more than you are entrusted with? Do you struggle with serving and instead feel the need for others to serve you. When you're somewhere doing what you do, whether it's here in the context of worship or there in the context of the world, who are you there for? And if you are the object of that, then, then maybe you struggle a little bit with sense of entitlement. And do you expect others the call to sacrifice, but do not have the same expectation for yourself? Maybe then you struggle with a sense of entitlement. Number two with these. Do you parade in public what should be done in private? All right? Here's what I mean by this. When you, when you do the right thing, when you do what God's called you to do, when you do what the boss has asked of you when he's not there or she's not there, 
when you're out in the world doing what needs to be done? Do you feel like, do you want, do you need it to be noticed? Right? And in that, not in the obedience, is where the gratification comes from. But it is in the sense of the recognition of others, right? What feeds the monster inside of you, right? Do we have this parade in, in, in public? When, when you do the right thing, do you feel the need to, to tell others? I always thought this is interesting. Jesus is, is, is pretty bold uh, about this and about this statement. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, uh, Jesus is talking about when you, when you give to the needy. And, and Jesus is so uh, checking us on the heart of the motivation of why we do things that Jesus says, hey, when you give to the needy, do so in a way that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. That even amongst you and in who you are and in what we're doing, that when we do the good, we're doing it for the right reasons out of obedience to the Lord and glorification for him so that I'm doing it in a way that I don't even try to glorify myself in this, much less feel the need to let everyone else know what I'm doing so that they can glorify me, right? Do you struggle with these things? Number, number three, do you struggle with a false sense of elevated spirituality. And I added this after I turned my, my notes in, or, or even a false sense of, of elevated intellect. All right. Here's what I mean. Do, do, we, do we constantly feel when we're in the room that we're the wisest, the most spiritual, the most mature person in the room? All right. do, we, do we carry ourselves with that? Right. The Pharisees would, would walk into a room and Jesus would be there, all right? Jesus. And they think, nah, I got this. Watch what I can do to him, you know? And, and, and it would say, the, the different places in Scripture would say that they would get in their minds how they, the questions that they were going to ask him in order to cause him to stumble because they were so much wiser than him in their own mind. And then before the words even came out of their mouth, he'd answer their question and, and, and shut them up, Right? but do we sometimes carry ourselves the same way? That when we walk into a room, when we walk into worship, when we walk into small group, when we walk into to work, there's this self-elevated sense that I'm the wisest, I'm the most spiritual, I'm the most mature person in the room. Or, or in, in this, right, also, do we struggle with learning the wisdom that God is giving us when it's being given to us by those that we deem amongst ourselves to be beneath us. Whether it's a person of different age, of a different sex, of a different race, or someone who's just been a follower of Jesus longer or shorter, right? <laughs> they don't have anything for me because I've already got it, right? And this is just this false sense of elevated spirituality or intellect. Number four, do you struggle with being consumed with the expectations of others? Right? Sometimes we think being a people pleaser is a spiritual gift from the Lord, <laughs> and it is not. But being fixated on what others think, right? either puts them on the throne of which you seek to serve, or, think about this, I do this for you because of the way it makes you view me. 
who's at the throne? I am. I am. What do you know about me? What do you think of me? What do you expect of me, right? This sin of self-righteousness. Number five, all right? I hope we all kind of maybe a little chuckle at this, but maybe see the truth where it hits us in the heart with this, right? Number five, um, are you excited about the shortcomings of others, right? <laughs> oh, they got it good. You know what I mean? Right? When, when you see the sins that others, others struggle with in, in our hearts, what it does to us is it reminds us of how good we really are. What does the Pharisee say? What does the Pharisee, let, let me jump back. Hope I don't lose my place. Let me, let me jump back here really quick. Do you know what tax collectors did? They extorted all right? So if, if the government said to the tax collector, go collect 15% of their income, then what the tax collector would do is say, the government said, give me 25. And then they would keep the other 10 for themselves. They were extortioners. And the Pharisees look there and they say, when he's standing in the, in the temple and the, the tax collector's there, what's the first thing he says? God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, like extortioners because I'm better than they are. And when we struggle with self-righteousness, when we struggle with self-glorification, we look at the people in our world and instead of grieving the sin that is in their life, we use it in a sick and twisted way to reinforce to us how good we really are, right? And then when others struggle, when others hurt, when others go through pain, right? What's created in us, like Paul tells us in Romans, to grieve with those who grieve and to weep with those who weep. But instead, when others struggle, there's this sense of prideful arrogance that says to us, they're just getting what they deserve, right? And at the heart of it, at the heart of the power of the grace of the gospel, is that every single one of us should get what we deserve. But instead, we get Jesus. And lastly, do you struggle with the distorted view of humility? Humility is the call that we see continually in Scripture. Humility was what was embodied by Christ as he came to this world. Just what we celebrated, right, a little less than a month ago. He came to this world with, with, not with parades and with mansions, not as a warrior and as a ruler, but as a baby. He came not with the celebration of, of politicians and authorities, but he came with the celebration of shepherds. He came not born, born into an earthly royal family, but he came to a teenage virgin mom and her carpenter husband. He didn't go to the palace and take his throne and say, this is mine. But instead, he went out into the wilderness, out into the outskirts where he began his ministry, not with the best of the best, but with the least of the least, those who had been rejected, those who had been forgotten about. And he said, come and follow me. We're going to change the world with the gospel. It's humility. It's who he was. That in humility... He bore the nails. In humility, he was beaten. 
in humility. He had every inch of clothing stripped off of his body so that he could be nailed to a cross to die for you and me. If you want to know what is the characteristic of the strength of the gospel, it's in humility. But do you have a distorted view of humility? This world teaches us that humility is a character weakness. Be strong, rise above, don't let them push you down because this is who you are. No, 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 it's because of who Christ is. And the call to serve and not to be served, right? A distorted view of humility causes us to see humility as a character weakness, but on the flip side of that, right? A distorted view of humility is seen as a personal strength that you and I can not only do within ourselves, but be perfected in, right? I kind of use this joking around a lot, but is this the positioning of your heart sometimes where your heart says to you, you know what you're really good at? You're really good at being humble, right? And then we carry that with us, right? Self-righteousness, self-glorification within there. How should we see humility? Do you see humility as a gift of God that has grown in you by the power of the Holy Spirit and not of your own? So that we can go out into the world proclaiming who he is. I want to close with this by actually flipping back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 30 and 31. Paul says, sandwiched in between these two messages that we looked at, these two passages from the last two weeks. He says, and because of him, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? You and I, we get to brag. You and I get to boast, You and I get to make much, but not of ourselves, but of Jesus. And that's the heart of it. And so when when Paul says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's saying in every moment that I was there with you through the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit, right? There's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You want to be strong, identify in weakness. You want to be strong, serve those who serve you. You want to be powerful, then understand that it rests in the power of Christ. And it's not in and of yourself that it's done. It's not found in the wisdom of this world, but it's found in the wisdom of God through the power of the gospel. Two questions and we'll close. Number one, are you blinded by your sin and unable to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ because of self-righteousness? I don't care if you've been coming to church for 80 years I don't care how many mission trips you've been on. I don't care how much you give. I don't care how much you do. I don't care what others think or what you think about yourself. Are you the Pharisee in the room celebrating all of who you are because of what you've done? And in that, 
your inability to respond to the gospel of Jesus because of your self-righteousness. But number two, are you struggling to live the life that God has for you? You want to be obedient. You want to see people's lives impacted for the gospel. You, you, you love the Lord, but just don't understand why you get in the way so much of that, right? Sign me up for this one. And maybe the struggle is because within you, there's a little peace that's like the disciples. And in the room, there's a sense of self-glorification that says, but I want to be the best, and I want to be recognized for being the best, right? Is this what you struggle with? Here's the beauty of both of these. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that covers them. It is the blood of Jesus that cleanses, and the Bible tells us that God separates our sin as far as the east is from the west so that you and I might become children of God. I love reading Paul about this. Because no one understood self-righteousness more than Paul. Paul as a religious ruler. Paul as the one of the persecutor of the church who is saved by grace and grace alone as God opened his heart and his eyes to the power of the gospel. And this morning our band's going to come up here. We're going to sing a couple more songs. It's my hope and my prayer that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God will open our eyes to the sin that is in our life and will respond to his grace and mercy. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your grace. Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, through the power of your Spirit, would we examine our lives and our hearts. Lord, for those of us in here who came in with a sense of self-righteousness, may we understand that our righteousness comes from you and you alone. That not one of us is deserving of salvation. Not one of us is deserving of your love. Not one of us is deserving of anything, but it is only through you that it's given to us. And I pray, Lord, through the drawing and the leading of your spirit, Lord, that their eyes would be opened, their hearts would be softened. And in this moment, they would respond to you and you alone. Lord, I pray for those of us who struggle with self-glorification, with pride, with arrogance. Lord, of constantly feeling the, the need to look down on others with constantly feeling the need to, to elevate their self above the, the rest, to find a, a weakened sense of esteem that, that is found in, in them and in them alone. But in Lord, instead, to find it in you. Lord, so that we can embrace what, what Paul said. And that we can come to others and weakness and in fear and in trembling so that what they see is not how great we are but what they see is how great you are and so Lord I pray that that would be what we reflect or that we would get out of the way 
we would not be our own objects of glory but Lord that you would be Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.